Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Sam, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thanks. How are you? Good. Well, Sam, thank you for coming on. Could you go ahead and give us just a brief background and some of the big things you're interested in? Sure. Um, uh, brief background. Um, hopefully this will be still not not too non-brief. Um, grew up in Buffalo. Uh, have a um, My family is pretty, um, came, came from like a pretty medical or science-oriented family. Um, so I was kind of in that mix of like science and interest in thinking about science and technology. Um, certainly one person who actually had a really big impact on my, um, on my interest, uh, was my grandfather. So he actually, he was a, he was a dentist lived to the age of 99. Oh, nice. He, um, uh, and he was like very, very interested in science and technology and the future and science fiction. And he actually, I, he read science fiction since like the modern dawn of the genre. Oh, I like, wow. and he read, I think he read Dune when it was like serialized in a magazine. <laughs> um, he read, uh, and he read like popular science for like, I think like over 70 years straight. And so he was really interested in this kind of stuff. And so obviously it rubbed off on me in terms of my own interests. Um, so in terms of like a little bit about my background, I, yeah, so I was very interested in science and technology. Um, did an undergrad at Brandeis University in computer science and biology, then continued on for a PhD uh, at Cornell in, uh, got a PhD in computational biology. Initially, I was very interested in evolutionary biology and kind of computational mathematical modeling of evolution. Uh, and then while I was there, I actually got very interested in using those kind of models more broadly to just kind of understand any large complex system. So kind of moving more into the field of complexity science or complex systems. Um, and so it's any large system with lots of interacting parts, whether it was in biology, technological systems, social systems. Um, so moved more into that, began thinking a lot about networks and interacting components. Um, and uh, after I finished the PhD, began doing, uh, began a postdoc um, in kind of the network science stuff, actually um, in, uh, in the Department of Healthcare Policy at Harvard Medical School. I wasn't doing anything healthcare particularly related. It was just that that was where my advisor had the most office space. Nice. Um, but it was a lot of like very interdisciplinary work trying to understand um, the nature of human behavior as well as trying to understand. Uh, I also began during this time began getting very interested in um, how to quantify scientific and technological change. And so people, some people talk about this as like meta research or meta science or meta knowledge. Also there's scientometrics, kind of the science of science. I began thinking a lot about this. Um, during this time, I also began doing a lot more um, writing for general audiences. Um, in addition to writing for other academics, I was also very interested in being able to uh, articulate these ideas to general audiences and kind of to the public at large. So I began writing about math and science and technology, which was a lot of fun. Um, began actually writing my first book for general audiences. Uh, and then um, after that postdoc, um, I actually left academia and uh, joined the Kauffman Foundation, which is a big philanthropic foundation devoted to entrepreneurship, innovation, education. Um, and at the time they were building this almost like a in-house think tank. Uh, and uh, I joined them as a senior scholar and kind of got to think about um, all the different topics I was thinking about, the nature of innovation, scientific and technological change, um, did some thinking there around um, why certain cities are more entrepreneurial than others. 
and uh, and then also began doing a lot more writing. And then now, um, which you guys, I, after I left Kaufman, um, I joined uh, Lux Capital, a venture capital firm, about I guess almost six years ago now. Um, which I mean, it's early stage venture, based in New York and the Bay Area. Um, I'm based in Kansas City, and uh, and my role is. Uh, as scientists and residents is to kind of survey the landscape of science and tech and find areas that we should be involved with, whether, um, and then based on that, find companies to invest in, find people to, uh, sometimes we might build companies around these people, um, engage with the public through writing and speaking. So I do a whole bunch of that, as well as um, connect the ideas and the people involved in them that I've been exploring to our portfolio of companies that we've already invested in. So it's a lot of almost like import export of ideas and people, which is a lot of fun. And so I would say and the kind of themes that I spend a lot of my time thinking about, and there's many, many different areas that I'm kind of thinking about at any one point, but the overarching themes are around um, kind of dealing with and making sense of complexity. Um, either like complex, like the complex systems of our technologies that we've built, um, or the wealth of knowledge and information that is around us that we've kind of constructed as part of kind of the scientific process. And so, and the two books that I wrote um, are about different aspects of this. So I wrote The Half-Life of Facts, which is about how knowledge changes over time, how it kind of, like, what are the regularities to how knowledge grows and changes and gets overturned and how error is rooted out and things like that. Um, and then my second book, Overcomplicated, is about how our technologies have grown more and more complex. Um, and increasingly, increasingly incomprehensible to not just like the everyday user of the iPhone or whatever it is, but even the experts who deal with these technologies on a daily basis, or might have even actually been the ones who created these technologies. And so I'm very interested in kind of thinking about complex technologies, complex knowledge. Um, and then related to that, I'm also very interested in how science works, how sometimes science doesn't work. Um, what are the new types of organizations we might need to actually kind of continue to foster innovation? Um, I'm also very interested in kind of um, in addition to like new types of organizations for thinking about this, but also like the ways in which people are being trained and they do science. And so um, do we need more generalist thinking in our kind of age of specialization? Um, and I'm also just very interested in kind of the, in the shape of the future and how science and technology affects society. I'm also, I'm affiliated with the Long Now Foundation, which is an organization in San Francisco devoted to very long-term thinking. And so I spend a lot of my time also thinking about and what are the long-term implications for these things? Um, so yeah, so that anyway, that's kind of a... Um, bird's eye, somewhat rambling overview of my background, as well as kind of the things I'm thinking about. No, I, I love all of that. And I, I wanted to just jump right in. Uh, one of the things you mentioned uh, earlier was, you know, quantifying technological scientific progress. How, how do you go about thinking about that? So, I mean, I mean, this is one of those things where I think it comes down to like, you often have to like, be and, and I'm not saying like I'm the one being clever about this, but like there's yeah. many, many scientists who've worked on this, but like oftentimes the scientists end up being like having to find ways of being clever about this kind of thing. So like so right. so in one very um and well-known metric is just simply um like how often science is cited or even just like the number of journal articles. Like so a more highly cited research would be viewed as more influential. Um and um, the, the number of papers would mean that, oh, there's more knowledge out there. Now, of course, and the thing is like those, and that's clever, but it's also at the same time, like we have to recognize those are just like, like those are easy metrics to actually quantify. Um, right. Science and research and discovery, they're a lot more messy than those kinds of things. Um, so I mean, just because a, a paper is being cited doesn't necessarily mean that someone says, oh, this is really influential. And so, um, so like to give an example, I mean, some people might be, uh, citing, citing a, a scientific paper because they say, actually, I disagree with it and I want to kind of overturn it. Um, other people would not be citing paper because they're so found, like, or citing certain research because it's so foundational, you just don't cite it anymore. So like, 
very rarely do I imagine physicists end up citing like Newton's Principia whenever they're writing right. scientific papers. I mean, it's just kind of like, it's, it's sort of in the air and everyone recognizes that Isaac Newton was very, very important and influential, but they're not necessarily citing it. And so um, you have to kind of caveat a lot of the different ways of, of looking at these things. And there are many other different ways of um, looking at how research grows and is overturned. Um, but also, and there's also just even things about thinking about how we um, like, like recognizing like how sometimes these metrics are unnecessarily, um, uh, I guess, narrow, um, but also recognizing that not only are they unnecessarily narrow, but in some cases that um, people use those metrics, not necessarily just as kind of like fun rules of thumb, but oftentimes they actually have implications for like hiring um, or getting tenure and things like that in, in right. scientific academia and recognizing though that these things are still somewhat narrow. And the way I kind of think about this is um, that there are many, many activities that are actually valuable for science, but unfortunately only a subset of them are actually valued by scientific academia. And some of that is because that those things are just easier to measure. Um, so one example of this, um, which is kind of interesting was there was a paper, it came out maybe, I don't know, decade or so ago, maybe a little bit longer. And it was about looking at um, researchers whose work was very high, highly cited. So I had a lot of citations and references. Um, but then they were also looking at people who um, were mentioned in the acknowledgments at the end of a paper. So they might, and so, because um, oftentimes at the end of a paper, you'll say, okay, like, thanks for this person who maybe yeah. helped with some data analysis or just kind of gave some idea or, or they were kind of just like in the mix in some way. And uh, this paper specifically looked at people who had a relatively mediocre number of citations, but a relatively high number of acknowledgments at the end of papers. And they found that when those people died, the, like, the productivity of all their collaborators actually dropped quite a bit. Oh, really? And so what it shows is that there are these people who are really valuable for science, but we're not necessarily like measuring this or quantifying or recognizing that as much. And, and I'm not, and which is not to say that therefore the solution is to start um, quantifying and measuring the number of times you get acknowledged, because I think that'll end up being gamed in some sort of way as well. Right. But I do think that we need to recognize that there are many, many activities that are important for science. And, uh, and they're not always e easily measured. I mean, uh, you think about like in innovation, I mean, like patents are certainly very valuable, but and there are many, many I mean, profound advances in like, um, especially in like kind of like the software world that have like no patents involved whatsoever. Right. And, and so uh, recognizing how, um, how these things are very imperfect metrics, um, but still sometimes the best metrics we have are, um, I, I think. I think it just it requires a certain amount of nuance and kind of how we measure it. But that being said, I still think these measurements are a lot better than nothing. And you you're actually able to see a lot of really interesting insight in terms of like, like exponential growth, the number of papers, and and yeah. like recognizing that and, and and even the most rough metric. I mean, like there's just far too much scientific knowledge out there for any one person to read. So we kind of know that even if we don't necessarily right. know the details. So yeah, there's a lot there. Definitely. That, that makes a lot of sense. Th this question goes off of that. Uh, where do you fall on like the tech stagnation debate? Like, you know, Ross Douthat, Peter Thiel, since 1970, you know, we've got Twitter, but no flying cars. What do you think about that? So I think it's really interesting. I, I, I think, I mean, I, I definitely think there's some like really interesting, like compelling data um, there. I think one of the, and so I do think in some, like in some ways we kind of, we under, value some of the like information technologies that have been developed gotcha. over the past 50 years or so. And like, those things are really, really powerful and impressive. Right. Um, and, and yes, like we, we don't have, I, we don't have flying cars yet. Um, and like, and kind of like since the seventies, in some ways, it feels like that um, some of like the kind of like 
the innovations of, of like things um, yeah. in terms of like, like we had like a lot of really great advances around um, like home appliances and cars and airplanes and things like that um, and like a hundred years before that. And then it's kind of like slowed down. And so, but at the same time though, I think, yes, some of the things when it comes like in terms of the um, innovation around stuff has slowed down a little bit. Um, but I think information te technology has, has not, or at least is maybe a little bit discounted at the same time though, I think, um, people are also recognizing that like over the past few years and some of these things, like some of the advances are beginning to speed up again. So it could just be, it wasn't necessarily this, I mean, that we're, that we got all the low hanging fruit and now we're, now it's just over. I, I think there's, there's kind of a certain element of like, maybe things just needed to accumulate. And then now we're kind of off to the races again. That being said, I do recognize that like, even when you look at these curves, it might require more and more effort to kind of make these advances. Um, I do think actually one interesting aspect of this is how we think is in terms of thinking about um, like specialization. Um, yeah. Oftentimes when a, when a scientific domain or, or some topic is new, um, that's when you can kind of make a lot of like easy, not, not easy discoveries, but relatively easy discoveries because there's a lot of new low hanging fruit. Like there's just a lot of new ideas and then it becomes more and more difficult. And so I think one of the things that we need to, um, spend our effort on is almost like the development of new fields. And, and I actually think one of the ways in which we can develop new fields is at the intersection of otherwise less connected domains. Um, so not necessarily say, not necessarily arguing that we should keep on making like subspecialties and sub subspecialties and keep on going more and more specialization, but all, but rather kind of recognizing that there's still a lot of space for innovation at the intersection of domains. Um, and I think that's something that's maybe a little bit, um, uh, less valued, but I, but I think could help overcome some of this kind of like stagnation argument. Gotcha. That makes sense. Do you think academia is just, is just poorly suited to cross-disciplinary work? And is, is there any way around that? So I, I do think to a certain degree, it is poorly suited to cross-disciplinary work. And I think one of the major reasons is related to kind of the incentives. And so right. even if you want to do cross-disciplinary work, you still are housed in a specific department and the right. metrics of success and whether or not you get tenure and things like that um, or continue getting promoted uh, is whether or not you can kind of play the game in your own specific domain, in your own specific gotcha. department. So even if you're doing interdisciplinary work, um, if it's too interdisciplinary and kind of doesn't really fit neatly into kind of like my department plus, but it's rather like my department kind of, but also this other thing, right. then you either have to be measured by multiple different departments or you kind of are fitting in somewhere halfway kind of in between. Um, so yeah, so it can be um, pretty difficult. Um, that being said, I mean, there's a lot of I mean, interdisciplinary centers and institutes and universities. Right. And so I think a lot of like academic organizations really try to kind of make sure that yeah. this is not uh, a problem, but, and, and, and I would say, I mean, so there's kind of, I, I guess there's kind of two aspects. There's whether or not you're doing interdisciplinary work. So whether or not it's like, the like I'm a specialist in one field and I'm working with a specialist in another field and we are together doing work that is interdisciplinary right. or whether or not I am a interdisciplinary individual, like whether or not I kind of cross lots of different disciplines. And, I, and so I think, and there's problems though in both, but I, I definitely think the um, two specialized individuals working together, that is much more straightforward in academia. Gotcha. Being an interdisciplinary individual, I, I think is very, very tough because it's gotcha. very hard to kind of know where you fit. Um, that being said, even kind of, having interdisciplinary teams is still tough because I think um, there's, you have to overcome jargon barriers, like just being even, even able to know, like, are we talking the same thing? Like, are we talking, 
and you can actually see this, like people have done some interesting research and they found that because of these kind of jargon barriers, um, certain scientific advances or probability models, mathematical models, they've been reinvented like many, many times in different domains because no one realized it. So they were just talking about the same thing, but it was named one thing in one area, it was named another thing in another area. Yeah. And so you just, and you, you see this all the time. And actually I can remember, I think it was when I was a postdoc, um, I was on this like uh, email list around network science. And so because it was network science, we had a lot of people from lots of different domains. Yeah. And so someone would email, maybe like a physicist would email and say like, oh, like, does anyone know of a metric to do the following thing around social networks? Yeah. And, and then someone else from sociology would email back and say like, oh, this has actually been known for like 30 years. Right. And so it was just like, and so in the next case, we were actually talking to each other, but if you hadn't asked, like people would just would not have known. And so I still think there's, um, it's tough with those. And I, I've actually seen some research where I think people have argued or like they've, they found some evidence that the more interdisciplinary a team is, the, um, I think it was like the high, the lower the average payoff in terms of like impact of the research, but the higher the variance. So the idea would yeah. be like, for the most part, you fail or you don't do as well, but when you do succeed, you succeed in it's some sort deal. of spectacular fashion. So I think, and which, and which oftentimes in, in research and academia is the question of, okay, uh, is the university model well-suited towards that kind of like high risk, high reward kind of model? Right. And Sometimes it is, I and mean, you could argue, oh, like once you have tenure, then you can take lots of risk. But oftentimes that is not necessarily the case. And so whether or not it's like high risk research or research that might take um, a longer amount of time than kind of the, than like the, the life cycle of a grant cycle, um, these kinds of things just often don't happen as often. Uh, and so, yeah, so I think there are a number of barriers to kind of being able to do that kind of thing in academia. That makes sense. That reminds me of a paper that blew up a couple of years ago on Reddit. I think it was on like a Reddit math forum, but it was uh, a nursing paper where they invent the way to get an area under the curve. Under yeah. a curve. So you know, it's I, like, oh my I God. I actually mentioned that. So in the Half-Life of Facts, yeah, I, I actually, I actually just, I, I think this is the, I think there was like this paper where it was like basically like reinventing like some, I think it was like the trapezoidal method yeah, so, or like <laughs> integral calculus or something like that. Yeah. And, yes. and, and, and to, to the credit of that domain, like a lot of people wrote in, I think into that journal article, like after, yeah. into the journal, like after it came out saying like, this is like, this is like Newton and Lab and it's developed this, like, yes. this is not like anything novel, but at the same time though, like, yeah, like that, that just kind of shows like, uh, that's sort of like an extreme example of, yeah, like it's really hard to be able to, to know all that is out there. Like and, and, and people have talked about this for, for decades. And there was a, um, there, there was an information scientist in the mid 1980s who he wrote this paper um, about what he, he referred to it as undiscovered public knowledge. And so the, the information scientist, Don Swanson, he said, okay, like, let's do this thought experiment. And, and imagine that there's somewhere in the literature, some paper that says A implies B. And somewhere yeah. else in the literature, it could be in maybe a somewhat, like a somewhat different subspecialty somewhere else entirely, there's another paper that says B implies C. And, be, and so even though if you read both these papers, you would say, okay, maybe actually A implies C. You could actually draw a connection between them because of the vast amount of knowledge. Like no one has actually read both papers. And so he said, okay, this is a fun thought experiment, but let me test it. And so he used kind of the then cutting edge technology of, I think he was using like the, like the medical database Medline and he was doing like keyword searches and saying like, can I find something that's like just out there? Like it's, it's undiscovered, but public knowledge, like it's knowledge that's out there, but no one has actually connected it together. Yeah. And he actually ended up making some discoveries. I think he found, he found a number of different things, including one where he, he found a relationship between um, consuming uh, fish oil and actually helping alleviate the symptoms around some like circulatory disease, um, a circulatory condition. And, and then yeah, I think he ended up publishing it in a medical journal. Um, and even though oh, he wow. was just, and he was not, he was not a physician, didn't have any medical expertise, but he realized that there was just knowledge that was, that was being underappreciated. And, um, and, and since then people have tried to create more automated and more sophisticated 
techniques for this, but there's still so much out there. And I, and I, I often feel that if we just stopped publishing new papers today and said, okay, let's take <laughs> like a five-year moratorium and just like, just delve into what's already out there and try to find interesting connections of things, we would still be making a lot of really interesting uh, advances. And so I think there's a lot, there's a lot of space there for just finding what is already out there and finding new ways to kind of navigate and cross-pollinate and kind of interconnect different domains within science. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love that anecdote too. So it, yeah, just going into these different fields and, and finding information that, that's really powerful and being able to apply that somewhere else. Um, and, and so this goes off my next question. You know, what do people generally just most misunderstand about how scientific discovery actually happens? Uh, I, I think in a pretty good amount um, to a certain degree. A and, 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 and certainly and the things I mentioned in terms of um, like that, how we, we sometimes value only a certain subset of things that are important for scientific discovery. And because of that, we end up, um, we end up like incentivizing those activities. And then, yeah. and sometimes the other things that are still really valuable in terms of maybe like building software tools for science or, or sharing data, these things, they don't necessarily fall through the cracks, but they're sometimes undervalued. Um, but I think, I mean, one of the, and I would say one of the broadest things that people sometimes forget about is that I mean, scientific discovery it's a human process. It's done by scientists. And so therefore right. it's going to be sub, it's not just like, oh, like brilliant hunches and, quick and <laughs> a quick, like quick analyses. And then just kind of like you write this perfect paper and then it's done. It's, there's a lot of ups and downs. There's dead ends. There's like complex back and forth arguments. There's work being done by irrational people. There's the fact that like, I mean, like a postdoc might've done some research and then decide not to continue on academia and then left. And then no one actually knows how to like replicate that kind of thing. Right. Like, it's just like science is done by people. And then I, and I think, Think, but more broadly than that, I mean, also we need to recognize that I mean, science, it's not just a, like science is not a body of facts that we just memorize. And science is really, it's a rigorous process of querying right. the world. And, and so like, science is a process done by people. Um, and so if we kind of say, oh, like science is this perfect, pristine thing, and then we see evidence otherwise, people are going to be I mean, put off by that and surprised and concerned versus saying like, no, it's actually this wonderfully human endeavor that, I and mean, that people get to participate in and it's not perfect. And we're going to keep on improving things and we're going to be like modifying things or having arguments about stuff and, and constantly figure out what we know and what we don't know. Like, and that's wonderful. And, and I love um, this, uh, th this story that um, a, form a former professor of mine in grad school told me that he was, he was teaching this, um, uh, he, he was teaching a course on like, came in on Tuesday, gave some lecture. The next day, he read a paper that actually invalidated what he had taught. So he went in on Thursday, the next time he was in class, and he said, remember what I taught you on Tuesday? It's wrong. And if that <laughs> bothers you, you need to get out of science. And so he, right. he like wanted to kind of almost like, like celebrate the fact that like science is constantly in draft form. Like we're always new, learning things new. Um, hopefully we're I mean, asymptotically approaching the truth, but like, but like the fact that like there's there's a lot of things we don't know. I mean, that's the reason scientists work at the frontier. Like we don't wanna work at all the things that are kind of known in the textbooks. You, you wanna work at like where there's still all the arguments in the back and forth and where there's things that maybe are real or maybe just not like, like uh, um, statistical noise. Like, like that's where it's really exciting. And so I think, yeah, I would say, I mean, people sometimes forget that scientific discovery is done by humans and scientists and and it's and it's an amazing endeavor it's always in draft form we kind of need to like revel in the fact that we're always learning new new things and overturning things and uh yeah just working with like as people so yeah i i would say that that's only one thing yeah no that's really important like people are working under all these different constraints you know and it's just like it's not a perfect like 
process. You know, it's not just like this perfect diamond that works yeah. flawlessly all the time. Um, the Overedge catalog, you know, what is it? And, and how did you first have the idea to put something like that together? Sure. Um, so yeah, so the Overedge catalog, and so, so, and to kind of step, take a step back. And so when, um, and when, when people often think about like science or innovation or kind of how research is done, they often think of it as being done in a few different places. Like it might be done in um, like, in a university or in a corporate industry lab, or maybe even sometimes like in a tech startup. Um, but the truth is like, those are really just like, those kind of organizations are just a few different points in some, like what is really like a vastly high dimensional space. And the truth is like that high dimensional space is often underexplored. And so the Overedge catalog is really my attempt at identifying some of the organizations that don't really fit kind of the traditional institutional models. Um, and, but I would almost say that they're kind of like the misfits for organizations and I'm using misfit in like the best possible <laughs> way. Um, and, and some of these are for-profit, some are non-profit, some are residencies, some are not, so like some are like kind of like, like distributed collectives, um, but they're all trying to kind of rethink um, institutional design and kind of doing research or kind of thinking about like the progress of knowledge in some kind of interesting way. Um, and so, um, and yeah, and so the way I kind of came up came up with this. I, I'm not really sure if it kind of came up with it in any sort of specific moment, but I, over the past number of years, I've been thinking a lot about new types of organizational structures. And, I, and I've always been intrigued by these kind of weird outlier groups. And, yeah. um, and by the way, so the term overedge comes from like the, um, this term in cartography, where you, you, know, you have a map, you have a border, but occasionally some like the, the information on the map kind of like seeps over the border, uh, where it might, maybe like a little, nice. like a, a little bit of a river needs to go or a, a the edge of some mountain range kind of goes around, go, goes beyond the border. Um, and those are referred to, at least in this one glossary that I found as overedges. And I thought, oh, this is great. Oh, like, this cool. kind of, these interesting outliers. And so, um, and so I've just been trying to kind of find as, and I've always been intrigued by these kind of outlier organizations. And so and I've been talking a lot of them, trying to catalog them. And at a certain point, I realized I had a whole bunch of just like in information and knowledge about these things, I should just kind of put it online. And there are other people who have kind of done somewhat similar lists or kind of collections from their own perspective. And I, and I must admit that like my like my listing of the organizations within the Overage Catalog is a very subjective list. And so um, since I began, I, I began publicizing the Overage Catalog maybe like a few months back. Um, okay. Since then, a lot of people have kind of written to me with suggestions of like either their own organization or other organizations that, that they're just familiar with and saying like, oh, maybe this is one that, that you should be um, uh, including and and some of them fit, um, some of them don't. Um, not and, and whether or not they fit or don't is very much like kind of my own judgment call. And I'm still trying to find like almost like are trying to figure out how best to articulate what these organizations are. But I, I just kind of view them as ultimately these are organizations where when you kind of describe like if you were running one of these organizations and trying to describe what you're doing, there's kind of like there's going to be a certain amount of like struggle and confusion initially. Right. And like and if there's kind of if you're kind of struggling to figure out where you fit, that often means you're doing like, at least from my perspective, you're doing something really interesting. Right. And, uh, and, and so when I developed this catalog, I, I wanted to publicize it one. And, and I would say, first of all, just because I think these are the kind of places where interesting people with interdisciplinary interests can actually thrive. But I yeah. also want and these organizations to realize like there's a community here, like these organizations are not alone. And the truth is a lot of these organizations are familiar with each other already. So it's not like I'm like, like introducing them to this whole new world. But like, but I think for many people, as people think about starting new organizations, they can they can realize that um, even if you're kind of going along a path that is less trodden, there still are people that you can talk to and kind of work with right. and, and discuss things with. And so yeah, and I've had some interesting conversations with people who are kind of in the beginning of starting these organizations, um, and kind of thinking about all this kind of stuff. And yeah, it's been it, it, since I kind of 
began publicizing the catalog a few months ago. It's been this like wonderful experience just talking to all these interesting people who are running these organizations, who are thinking about these organizations. Um, and I just want there to be more. I kind of view it as like, we need to begin populating this high dimensional space. Um, whether, and will these organizations continue? Like, like, are they gonna all be be still out there in like 10 or 20 years? I don't know. Um, but I kind of view it almost as like evolutionary process where in the beginning, I want there to be a Cambrian explosion of all these cool organizations. And, and hopefully some of them will survive. And like, maybe we will hit on some really interesting attractors within this high dimensional space that then will be the new kinds of um, uh, sort of like established models that people can actually emulate. So um, yeah, it's really exciting stuff. That's awesome. Are there any that are particularly interesting that you think, I don't know, I, I don't want you to pick favorites. Yeah, I'm not sure. And I, I want to, I, I don't necessarily want to pick favorites. I certainly yeah. think that like certain like organizational models or like revenue models are kind of interesting, like whether or yeah. not it's like I'm trying to have like certain like corporate sponsorships or kind of, or tra- creating certain t- types of, um, uh, um, reports that people can subscribe to. Um, I definitely think that it's very interesting to see some of these organizations that are kind of trying to blend um, both research as well as sometimes like education. And so there's like these interesting organizations that are doing residencies or education model, uh, like or having an educational component or having research components. Um, and, and really, I would say, and as long as they're kind of doing a non-obvious combination of things, I think that's really interesting. So gotcha. um, if it's like, trying to act as like, um, like basically acting as a startup and building a product, but also actually incorporated as a nonprofit. That's interesting. Um, if they're a for-profit, but they're, I'm, they're, they really don't have a product and they're just kind of doing a lot right. of research. That's also really interesting. And so, so I just think, I, I just, these like non-obvious combinations within this high dimensional space are fascinating. That's awesome. I love that. Uh, that reminds me of, of, you know, it used to be Xerox Park, Bell Labs, you know, big names. And the big tech companies do have research labs like this. I think Google does, Facebook does. I'm not sure about the others. But it, it seems like they're not producing the same. And maybe they are. We just don't hear about it. But it does, It you know, I hear Bell Labs. I hear Xerox Park. I'm like, oh, man. Like, you know, I know they, they produce some really important stuff. But the the big tech companies today, that seems to be less the case. Do you, do you have that general feeling? Or do you think that's just kind of misplaced, just a PR thing? So, um, and, and definitely, I mean, Xerox Park and Bell Labs, like they made a lot of really interesting innovations. And the truth is, one of the things I wonder about when we, when people kind of think about these kinds of things is like if there's a certain amount of um, like survivorship bias or like hindsight bias where I mean, right. for all and I imagine there were a lot of research labs in like the mid 20th century. Um, and I don't know to what degree uh, I, and, and like, I'm just not aware of many of them. So it could be right. we only hear about the successful ones. Um, that being said, I mean, the reason I mean. Bell and Xerox were able to kind of do so well is because they they had these like pseudo monopolies um, or some right. effective monopolies. And so they had a lot more flexibility. Um, and so um, that being said, I mean, Google and Facebook are pseudo monopolies as well. Right. And so like, yeah, so maybe they could, they could do that kind of thing. And so I think, um, and there are, and I've also and I've read a lot of analysis about the kind of things that like what distinguishes Xerox Park and Bell Labs from these other kind of things, um, from these other kind of more modern organizations. Yeah. Um, so I would say two things. One is I do think some interesting research is coming out of the current labs. Um, it might take a certain amount of time to kind of recognize some of those kinds of things. Um, sometimes it also could be that some of it is being productized in a way that we don't necessarily associate with research. So like, for example, gotcha. um, like I'm pretty sure the like new, like newest version of like Google's translate function um, 
came out of like Google Brain, like all their research arm. Oh, wow. um, and and that's and it's unbelievably good. Um, but yeah. we kind of think of it as like a product, but like it's it's unbelievable. I mean, and like when, when I think about um, like the translation from like I don't know, like what's like the late '90s, early 2000s, there was like Babblefish.com, and like it was terrible. Um, yeah. And now it's like you can read newspapers and other languages and like I like it's not perfect but like it's extremely really serviceable uh, and, so, and so, I, so I'm not sure we should like undercount some of what's what's happening but I, I but I do think there are kind of interesting institutional structure components around like the labs and Xerox and so like certainly like Xerox Park um like one of the things that I think people uh maybe sometimes like underappreciate is not just like the collection of raw talent and just kind of like the brains that are there, but also the people who almost like ran interference between the lab and the like the corporate structure. Ah. And so, and like the people who are willing to say, okay, like I'm going to run interference and let you do your thing and kind of protect you from all the corporate bureaucracy and other kind of, uh, and other kinds of things. Um, those kinds of people I think are really, really important. And um, I imagine to a certain degree, those kinds of people exist at like the large corporate industry labs of today. But but I definitely think being very deliberate about that kind of thing is is extremely important, and then something we we sometimes yeah like uh, like don't focus as much attention on. Gotcha. So maybe protecting and like you know building this little enclave where you know you're safe from all the paperwork and everything's really important, and and just having yeah, freedom. Or, yeah, having the freedom, and sometimes even just like the time, because I, I think right. a lot of things with like and with research, like research just takes time, um, and and it's very hard to kind of say okay, like, like I'm doing research. I don't really know what's going to come out of it. It's going to be really interesting. And I also will have you something like I'll have something to you in like a year or even six months. Like, it, it, like there's like a slow burn, like it takes time. And yeah. so, um, and I think being able to kind of protect um, a, a group of, a group of researchers for a certain amount of time is also very important. That, and that being said, I mean, a lot of in these organizations, like the ones, even the successful ones, like they had like a certain sweet spot in time when they were doing a lot of their things. And, and then, and like some of them are kind of still around to varying degrees, um, but they're not necessarily churning out the same kinds of like Nobel prize winning research or things like that. And so, um, yeah, it, it's, I mean, yeah, this is a long way of saying, I think there's a lot of factors. Um, some of it could be, some of it could be just simply like the individuals who are being aggregated. It's the um, the institutional structures around them that is potentially giving them the freedom to do other thing. And some of it could also just be survivorship bias. Of like we kind of just only look at the successes and forget that. For, and, and and the truth is, I don't know. I, there could be it could be that during this like mid twentieth century period or whatever, there weren't that many research groups. Uh, and, and and so the fact that we only hear about the successful ones is that we only actually hear about all of them. But it could also be that we just hear only about the successful ones. And there were a lot of ones that were just less successful. Um, and, and I think it's, it's kind of something interesting. And, and I, I feel like I should have a have better data about that. But um, but yeah, I, I'm not sure though. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's a complicated question, no doubt. Um, have you read Don Braben's Scientific Freedom by any chance and his concept of- I have, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I had a chance to go, go, go through it. It's really interesting. That's awesome. Yeah. So we had Don on the show a couple of months ago. Really awesome guy. Yeah. He's like 85. He's still kicking. He's really cool, dude. That's awesome. Uh, How important do you think scientific freedom is? Is it, you know, Don talks about it as it's like, you know, it's, it's like, you know, the air we breathe. It's like really important to give people flexibility to pursue, you know, the wacky ideas they're interested in. And I, I tend to agree with him, you know, just think about Max Planck, you know, 20 years to thermodynamics, it feels like it would be difficult for that to happen today. What do you think about that? So I think, I mean, definitely 
freedom is important and like, and like having a certain like, like not having as many constraints is certainly useful um yep. at the same time though i still think um probably some constraints like mild constraints are actually useful in oh, terms of like causing people to get more done um in my sense is like if you look at like like an organization like the institute for advanced study in princeton yeah um that, that i mean there, there, I guess there was like a burst of really interesting work in like, kind of like the late forties around like the development of like the modern computing infrastructure, yeah. but by and large, a lot of people who end up being there like long-term, yeah. um, they've often had like, kind of like their best work behind them. Um, not necessarily always, but like, but it, but it's often like a great place to kind of like just hang out and discuss interesting things. And, and I wonder, and, and I guess this could, as a hypothesis that could be tested. And I wonder if it's because they're almost there are too few constraints and kind of too few pressures that it's suddenly you just like, you don't have to feel like you have to kind of generate anything. Um, now that being said, I think probably a lot of the best scientists have a certain amount of like, like internal drive. And so whether or not right. they have constraints, they're still going to get things done. And so I'm, now I'm kind of arguing both sides of this. Um, but, but I do think I mean, scientific freedom I and mean, certainly in kind of the world we are in where yeah. um, especially in like, in kind of like, within universities where um, there's certain incentives and um, certain pressures on publishing and things like that and, and, and grant cycles. Um, I definitely think scientific, like we need a lot more scientific freedom. Gotcha. Like, and so I think we're nowhere near the, po the point where scientific freedom is gonna be a problem. Gotcha. Um, but, but I do think like, if we were in that wonderful world where everyone has huge amounts of scientific freedom, then we might wanna be a little bit more deliberate about how we think about it. Cause it could eventually be an issue as well, kind of on the other extreme. But I definitely um, do agree that we need to create more opportunity for scientific freedom, whether or not it's through grant granting agencies, how we think about structuring universities, things like that. I think there's a lot of different ways in which we can kind of generate greater scientific freedom. Gotcha. So probably important, but at the end of the day, incentives do matter. Yes. <laughs> That's cool. Love it. Um, I wanted to kind of take a left turn a little bit here. So, you know, in general, how skeptical should we be of, you know, really easy gains in like our, in biology, especially like, so nootropics and, and things that make us smarter, you know, it seems like we're already pretty well optimized, you know, in general, like, is that just a bad place to be looking for, you know, advances? So <laughs> it's a good question. I, I think there's nothing wrong necessarily with looking at like, and yeah, Good and to look, right? and it would be great if we can kind of like find some, some, something that like, I don't know, helps us like never have to sleep or and like, yeah. and kind of like overclocks our bodies and or our brains. Um, but I do think, I mean, it's unless that we're kind of like, and I not that humans are in, or biological organisms are like extremely optimized things, but like, we're like, we have been optimized over long stretches of evolutionary time. And oftentimes that involves like creating like optimization between extremes, like, uh, basically like, like managing a lot of trade-offs. And so, yeah. and, and, and you can see this where, and, and, and we're, we're really more like, and we're like these like messy kludges that have like evolved over long evolutionary time, optimizing trade-offs, dealing with things. And we're, we're enormously complicated. And so the idea would be, so, so the argument that like you can find something that can immediately kind of cut through complex metabolic pathways, um, and will like allow us to kind of change or be improved really easily, I think is, I mean, it's exciting, but I think it also betrays a certain amount of almost like engineering naivete where like, it's like, like, oh, like, like because we have these engineered systems in technology that we can kind of understand or overclock yeah. or, or tweak, then therefore humans, which are systems as well, they can also be 
engineered and modified. And like, but we are, I mean, we are, um, like we're not engineered. Like I, I, right. I, I, there, I think there's, I mean, there's, um, there's some trees in my backyard um, that actually have these like giant, like dangerous looking spikes on them. <laughs> and the reason they're there, the, the, the evolutionary argument is that they are there because um, they're there to protect the tree against like the fruit or, or the seeds being eaten by all the megafauna of North America, which of course oh, wow. are extinct. Like these, these, yeah. like most of these, like I don't know, giant sloth or whatever, these, yeah. these things don't exist anymore. They've been extinct for know, like 10,000 years plus. Um, but this tree still has them. And so I think, and to rec- to, to argue that like we are these like well honed machines that maybe we just kind of need to be like tweaked a little bit more. Um, like we're not, we're, we're, we're messes. And so, so I think, I think it's, um, like I think we can we can make improvements and we should certainly try, but it all needs to be done with a certain amount of like humility in the face of complexity rather than a hubris of like, oh, like we understand how to engineer systems. Like, yeah, you don't know how to understand, like you don't know how to engineer systems or like modify systems that have been um, like subject to constraints over like millions of years right, that right. have like insane numbers of like interconnecting parts. Like, like, like this is something that I think a lot of like people from the engineering world who are uh, enamored of nootropics, um, Kind of sometimes forget that like biology is like orders of magnitude more complex than technology. I love that. I love that. It, yeah. It sounds like unless you like, there's some like easy constraint you could see, like maybe, you know, there's this drug you take, it makes you burn quite a few more calories. And then it's like, well, that makes sense. That that might be a trade-off, you know, in the right, yeah, it, it, right. Right? It, it could work, but it's like, you also have, like, it could be trade-offs. Like you have to recognize right. that. And, and this <laughs> exactly. is, and this is like, when, when I think about like, um, was it um like Michael Pollan's dictum of what is it like? Um, eat food, mostly plants, not too much. And he's like, okay, like this is like, this is what, and, and he kind of describes what all these different parts mean, but it's basically the argument of like, we have these traditional diets that have served us well for millennia um, or maybe not quite millennia, but like for a long time. And like yeah. to mess with them and kind of argue that we're going to kind of break things down to, into individual nutrient components. Um, I don't think that's a bad idea. Like, I, I, I definitely, I mean, I am of the belief that like we should obviously be learning more and more about our own biology. I mean, right. my initial training is in like evolutionary biology. Like these things are great, but to immediately say that um, like that we can kind of like just walk like like wipe away kind of the, the, the slow incremental tinkering approach that we've had for a long time um, as just like I don't know, kind of like I'm, like old wives' tales. Like, I think it betrays a certain amount of hubris um, rather than saying like, we can learn from it. Maybe we can do better. Um, but like, but I think there's something there and kind of recognize like maybe we need to have a certain amount of humility here. That makes sense. I like that. Um, are you down for a round of overrated, underrated? Sure. Let's do it. Let's do it. So complexity, overrated, <laughs> underrated? So I, I, at this point, you probably can tell my obsession with, with complexity. <laughs> I would say it's probably underrated, um, mainly in the sense that I think when people hear the word um, they like often just think it's like kind of this like thing that's bad or something to avoid versus like, for me, I think it's just like, this is the world we're in. And we need to like, we need to recognize that. And I, and I actually, th- I think it's underrated in the sense that I think people all, almost don't even always realize that we are living in a, in a world of sufficient complexity, whether or not it's right. like, through these nootropics, um, as well as, and like even just the technologies we built. So, um, I remember when, um, like around the time, like the Apple watch came out, um, I think the wall street journal, like a few months later had this article and like their style section around like, whether or not like mechanical watches are still going to be a thing or whether or not people are going to just start buying smart watches. And so yeah. they, and there's a quote by this one person they interviewed who was saying like, like, of course I want a mechanical watch. Like when I think about the mechanical watch and all of its complexity, as opposed to like a smart watch, which is just a chip. And I'm like, yeah, like, I, I get like that mechanical watches are complex, but like just a chip 
hip. Like these things are like <laughs> so much more complex, but you've been shielded from that complexity. And I think right. oftentimes when we think about complexity, like we've just been, we've been shielded from it and, and we, um, we don't realize how much is out there. Um, and then also related to that, I think we just, I mean, like, yeah, it's wonderful. Like we desire simplicity and like, that's not a bad thing, but I think, um, actually I mean, things that are, when the world is more complex, it also just makes the world more interesting. Um, and so, yeah, so I would say, um, probably a little, a little bit underrated. Definitely. Yeah. And the example you gave, you know, Apple's one of their unique advantages seems to be their ability to make things seem like they're, they're very simple, you know, and it, it there's, and hide all these complex processes behind. Right. You, and you often don't even realize how complex they are until they fail. And they're like, like okay. Oh, there's, there's a lot going under the hood here, um, <laughs> which is, and it, which is not bad, but, but I think, um, but I think we need to have a little bit better sense of the vast complexity of like the technologies and just the world that we're in because yeah in a world where sometimes even the experts don't fully understand the technologies they've built because they can't grapple with just the massive number of interconnected parts um it's incumbent upon each of us to a certain degree to kind of just be aware of the complexity around us and maybe have ways of like peeking under the hood and, and, and a computer like throwing up a terminal every now and then and doing some like command line stuff like like having that ability to kind of see what's what's in there and like, how complex things are um i think can actually be a good thing not a bad thing that's awesome Specialization, overrated, underrated? I would say overrated. Um, and, and people, and specialization is very important. Don't don't, don't yeah. get me wrong. I think I mean, specialization is something we need and we've been able to make a lot of advances and people who are experts in this very narrow field have allowed us to actually learn a lot about the world. Um, and, and I think, but, but related to that though, is um, when we specialize too much, we lose the ability to kind of connections between different domains um, and those and or whether or not it's like overcoming jargon barriers and finding things that have been like rediscovered like been discovered in some other area like we need people who can jump across domains um, run that kind of import export business of ideas um, as well as kind of connect like finding connections and saying like oh these two fields should actually be they can be productively um, connected um, I definitely and I think I mean specialization it's obviously very important but like but one of the other things is that like as we've started doing larger and larger projects whether it's technological projects scientific projects that the only way to do them is to kind of combine lots of different specialists together which means though as a result no one individual really has a sense of what's going on in some large product or some scientific endeavor um and and that's not great like if we kind of understand things but only partially um that's, that's not good, which is not to say that, oh, therefore, like a generalist are going to understand everything, but I think we should strive to, and whether it's like the T-shaped individual where people can kind of cut across different domains and maybe have some, have some specialization in one domain, um, or simply just being comfortable in like, like learning about new domains. I think that is something that is, that is really important. And, um, and it can also just give you like a competitive advantage in the world. If like you can kind of understand multiple different domains and no one else can, that's, that's great. Like you can do things, maybe other people can't. So I would say specialization is probably a little bit overrated. Love it. 1980s computer magazines. Ah, uh, so, <laughs> so old magazine, old computer magazines are fantastic. I think they're, I, I think they're, they're underrated. Um, not just in for like the nostalgia component. Yeah. I, I certainly like looking at old computer magazines is like interesting from a nostalgia component, but I actually think they're a really interesting source of, um, like, like raw material for innovation. Um, I think a lot of people kind of in the tech world and kind of like the whole like Silicon Valley community, they're yeah. often pretty ignorant of technological history. Um, sometimes, like proudly ignorant. I, I would say that that's probably more the exception rather than the rule, but most people are just not aware of like the deep history of what's happened in technological history. And 
And we often, because of that, in the same way that sometimes if we can't cut across jargon barriers, we end up reinventing things. We often end up doing the same thing um, in technological history. Like we end up like, like reinventing something that has been done maybe like decades before. And so being able to kind of just look at what has come before us and, and, and seeing like what were the like what were the tools people were trying people were trying to develop, or what were the problems people were trying to solve, or what were the, the killer apps people were trying to make? Like these things are like in general, the people the problems that people had, like they're not necessarily going away. I mean, and we, when I think about um, like the current, like no code, low code moment, yeah. I mean, that's not like a new thing. I mean, like, uh, like in like, like, like the old Macintoshes in like the na- like late 1980s, like they came with a computer program called HyperCard. And like, that was basically like a proto, like end user programming, no code, <laughs> low code interface. And like, so these things like, were not, and, and the truth is a lot of people kind of who are excited by no code, no code. Um, they often like use kind of hypercard as a touchstone but like it's not like these things are not necessarily new like they're kind of like things come in cycles there's and it was like ecclesiastes there's nothing new under the sun or whatever it is um like recognizing that um like we we can actually learn about about what is like, like we'll learn about what are kind of the the things that we can be doing and and rather than just kind of constantly reinventing actually build upon what came came before us i think is really really important so um yeah 1980s computer magazines they're amazing and uh, and definitely underrated. That's I I love that and it sounds like it's a it's a great place to look because there are things that people could be, they could have been trying to do in the '80s that were just not possible due to you know technology constraints that now are possible and right you know, and I, and I can this. remember this is maybe it was like in the '90s but um but like in a lot of computer magazines there were just like tons of ads for like simple neural network software and all these kinds of things. And which I mean, paralleled sort, of, like, paralleled sort of like the development within AI where it was like, it was hot for a little while and kind of became less hot um, and like kind of hit, ran into some uh, some barriers. And then now of course has been able to make a lot of advances. But um, but yeah, seeing just the fact that like there was, it was not just like research being done in academia. Like there were like people were selling like consumer software. Like there were advertisements for like a neural network software in computer magazines. Like it was great. Yeah. It was fantastic stuff to see. <laughs> I love that. Um, polyphasic sleep overrated, underrated. So, um, I guess I'll kind of go back and forth on this one. I would say probably it's like probably properly rated in the sense that like most people ignore it and kind of think it's kind of wonky and weird, yeah. but then they're like the people who kind of think it like, but at the same time, like the people who are think it's amazing are probably like overselling it. Um, and my sense is, I mean, I, mean, I, I guess I would say one of the, one of the times I kind of looked into it, I never actually experimented with it myself yeah. in terms of like changing my sleep habits. But, um, uh, when, when my son was born, he was slept horribly. And I was like, Oh, I wonder if there's a way of kind of like overclocking my sleep or kind of like yeah. finding some like quick fix to my need for sleep. Um, and so I looked into it. Um, I mainly realized that, um, like it would just be like, it would, wreak havoc on like my ability to like interact with like my family and like, and like do things like that. So, so I eventually I ignored it, but I, but I would say actually one of the things that I think about it is the main issue is almost like, it's like less whether it works and more about what it says with our like cultural obsession with like the nature of like being busy and like always doing things. And I, and I actually think like the more, I now that I've actually, like my son now sleeps very well. It's been many years since he, since he slept very, very poorly. Like I, I now can get sleep, but I also realize like, I, I see the increasing importance for like, rather than trying to kind of like overclock my sleep and get as much awake time as possible. Like there's actually value in kind of going the other way and like taking breaks or people making lots of arguments about like working shorter, like shorter work weeks or shorter, shorter hours. Um, these things are all, they allow us to kind of not only 
sometimes work more efficiently or work better. Like there's kind of like these, there's the efficiency argument, yeah. but they also give us a better sense of like helping us figure out what is actually important and what we want from our lives. And so I think, and for me, polyphasic sleep sometimes like is, is a way of almost like ignoring or kind of like, like pushing aside that entire deeper question of like, okay, do I actually need to be as awake as I think I need to be? Right. Can I prioritize certain things that I keep room that, that I think are important? Can I cut back on my work? Do I have to, can I realize that maybe I don't need to get as much done as quickly? And so um, I would say, I mean, it might very well work. Um, and I'm sure there's many people who swear by it and think it's great. Um, right. But I, and so, so in that sense, I don't think it's like underrated, but I also think it's like overrated in the sense of like work. It, it forces us to kind of, it, it prevents us from actually grappling with the, the things that are truly important gotcha. in like humanity. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, no, it, it does. Uh, that's a really good point. It's almost frenetic, right? It's like, oh God, like may, maybe you should just sit down and think, well, what should I really be doing? What's the highest value activity exactly. I, can, I can contribute? A little bit. Um, the efficient market hypothesis, overlay, overrated, underrated? Uh, so this, I, I, I'm not really sure. I, I, I guess I do think, I mean, and probably most people like who are not like, not like professional investors, certainly like most people yeah. should operate as if it were true, because I think and while like while there are inefficiencies in the market, like they're really hard to find. Um, and so like you should kind of operate as if it is accurate. And so I, I don't know if it's like underrated or overrated. It's probably like it's um, it's something good that people should incorporate into most of their investments rather than kind of being obsessed with like trying constantly trying to beat the market or find inefficiencies, um, because unless that is like the majority of your job like that's right it's, it's it is a it is a very tough thing to do definitely yeah i i think that's it's a great point and and i i think it's perhaps underrated in the sense over it's underrated by most people investing in public markets and it's like perhaps underrated overrated in certain areas where you know people don't have you know, there's in, this inadequate equilibria and incentives. Right. I, I, I think like part that. of this is also like, depending on like which community you're talking to, it'll right, be exactly. overrated or underrated. Yeah. Definitely. Love that. Um, well, Sam, thank you so much for coming on. Do you have any parting thoughts and where should people go find your work? Um, well, first of all, thank you so much. This is fantastic. I, ha I had a, a blast talking about all these different things. Um, in terms of parting thoughts, I don't think I have any anything particularly insightful to say. I mean, certainly, I, I, I definitely, I, I'll kind of like reiterate the whole thing about like recognizing that like science is a very human process, I think is an important maybe and maybe underrated kind of thing to think about. Um, and also kind of recognizing that and complexity is around us, but we can actually kind of sometimes I mean, harness that or kind of appreciate it rather than just trying to like avoid it, I think is something important. Um, in terms of like how to find find me online, um, my website is uh, arbisman.net. Um, so just my last name and then .net. Um, I have a, uh, a newsletter, um, arbisman.substack.com, but you can also just go to arbisman.net to subscribe to it. Um, I have left kind of other social media. So that's kind of my, my major um, way of interacting is either through the newsletter um, where you can also kind of see like other places where I where I write periodically. I'll often link those. Um, and then my my website has a whole bunch of uh, like older writing and other, other things that I've done as well. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Sam. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. This is fantastic. Awesome. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.